Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Evolved Caveman. This is Dr. John, and I am here today with my old friend, Ellie Weinstein. And Ellie is host of The Dude Therapist, mental health professional, father of one, with one more on the way in February. And I always enjoy our conversation. So welcome, Ellie. How are you doing? I'm super excited, you know, just to, to be able to have a person like you uh, to watch, a mentor, to, to see all the amazing work you're doing is so amazing that we get to be able to, to do this back and forth uh, greatness that we keep doing. So I'm just excited to be well, here and talk. Yeah, I, I mean, I like the, the relationship, the friendship, the support. I, I really value that. Same, same. I think it's so amazing to have, you know, I know for me, when I came across your account and got, and got in touch with you to find um men who are working growing you know learning and in the mental health world as well that combo for me is very important so when i find those people i'm like i very much latch on to watch and see and understand and and, and make that connection because as a male professional mental health professional in grad school it was like two other men in, in my uh -huh. year and in my office that i used to work only men were psychiatrists and no therapists. And then, you know, it's just very weird. So when I find that person or people that I find very interesting and relatable, it's very important to have that in our lives as men. Well, thank you. And, and I think it's really important work because I think that, you know, and, and we've talked a little bit about this, that man box culture, that socialization process that we go through and how it just shuts down, I would argue, two thirds of the emotional spectrum, yeah. which kind of screws us up later in life in our relationships and our romantic relationship primarily. But then you can also extend that into work as well. 100%. Um, so you just had a child two years ago, correct? Yeah. And so we were going to talk a little bit today about fatherhood, parenting, and, and then sort of the emotional awareness, emotional struggles that you had as a new father, which I think is to me, a really important message because I had some of those same struggles mm -hmm. and I don't think anybody talks about it. Yeah. So no what did you experience after you became a father? Yeah. It's just so interesting. Cause now that my wife is pregnant and due in about eight weeks or so, um, I'm going through in my head wondering where I was back when my daughter was born. Um, and the idea that my wife was totally connected to this potential being, um, right. Feeling it kick, feeling it grow, watching it grow, feeling the changes of your body. And I'm just standing on the outside watching, not experiencing that. And to me, it's really this theoretical potential. I know it's there. I've been to every scan or whatever, however many scans I could. I see the pictures. I feel the kick. Like I, I'm not delusional that it's not there, but it's the, the weirdness that I'm not truly connected to it yet. And yeah. so when my daughter was born, it was this zero to 60 of not knowing a thing about this being and then all of a sudden it being there also the birth of my my daughter was a, a little uh emergency emergency section so it was a lot of emotion and i remember yeah. after she was born and i got to hold her and then the doctors take you know the baby and all these things uh i ran to the bathroom and vomited because my emotion mm -hmm. was so high my body was needed to get something out it was such an overwhelming experience of worry and concern and anxiety and then what I felt as a mental mental health professional, I was so trying to be in tune and watching my wife 
for postpartum and taking care of her after the C-section, making sure that she was safe. Okay, uh, how is motherhood? How are you doing? That I never really stopped to worry about myself. And then about a month or two into my, my daughter's life, I had a massive panic attack. And mm -hmm. uh, it really caused me to pause and take a huge reflection on where I was emotionally and where I was health-wise, my mental health. And uh, I, it's, it's really changed my, my perspective on fatherhood drastically. Well, it makes you a better therapist because now you've got those experiences to draw upon. Yeah, I and never experienced but, I mean, panic attacks before until that. Oh, oh, congratulations. Welcome to the crowd. We've got yeah. jackets. So, um, <laughs> so let go, there's a lot there to unpack. So go back to the operatory. They, they tell you your wife's going to have to have an emergency C-section or they mm -hmm. tell the both of you. You go in, you have... You're, were you in the, the operating room during the surgery? Yeah. Okay. And then they pull the baby out, uh -huh. your daughter. What were the emotions at that point? Like, because at that point, they kind of, they clean off your daughter. They put her into the little, I don't know what that is, NICU or little, yeah. you know, heating tub. Yeah. And they start doing, you know, temperature and, and checks and, and cut the umbilical cord. Yeah. And, and then they wheel her out to the nursery and you're supposed to follow her to the nursery, correct? Um, I don't know what the protocol is or was or how it really is supposed to go. Um, but I know for me, there were like three really intense emotions happening. One is my wife going to live, mm -hmm. right? Am I going to walk out? Wait, so what's the emotion there? Oh, total fear. Okay. I was Thank you. totally afraid by yeah. the fear that I was going to lose my wife and daughter in one fell swoop. And mm -hmm. how was I going to walk out of the hospital like that? Or if you just lose your wife, then you're left alone with the daughter. Yeah. How could I do that? I, I was so, which is and watching my also. wife, my wife uh, did not do well with anesthesia. So she was like shaking a lot. It was a very scary experience. Uh. And, but then all of a sudden everything shifted when my daughter was born, we didn't know what we were expecting. So it's like, you have a daughter and it was this very beautiful experience. I got to hold her because my wife did not feel comfortable to hold her with all the shaking and meds. So, mm -hmm. but to be, I remember vividly holding my daughter towards my wife. My wife said, Oh my gosh, she looks like my mother. That was the first thing she said about our daughter. Um, and, uh, I love her so much. You know, all this beautiful, this very, it went shifted from fear and anxiety to love and, and joy in a matter of split second. And mm -hmm. then now what do I do? That was the next mm -hmm. thought was, okay, I went from this extreme to that extreme. I, I don't know what to do now with my body and my mind. Yeah. And then it was just telling my in-laws and my parents that everything's okay, calming down my nervous system and trying to, mm -hmm. what's next? The next thing was making sure my wife was safe and thank God she was okay. And then it was, okay, now when are we going to see this baby again? So it was this like this pendulum swing of emotions and feelings and thoughts that I never knew I could go from that drastic experience from one to another in a matter of seconds. Yeah. So it was a very interesting experience. It, it's interesting when I went through, cause I, my wife, now my ex-wife, um, she had four C-sections. And so the first one, like you, I remember I, I didn't look at the operation much cause I, no, I just saw the, the blood on the, the floor. anesthesiologist was like, if you're going to faint, faint that way, like away from the <laughs> table. I was like, okay, got it. Um, and so my daughter gets pulled out and, they, they told me after they cleaned her up, you know, 
you need to follow her to the nursery. I guess, I don't know, make sure that no baby swapping goes on. I'm not quite clear, but I remember feeling really torn in that moment. Like, wait, here's my wife mm-hmm. and I can see her organs on the table and I can talk to her head, which is a really surreal experience. Like she's talking to me and I can look beyond the curtain and there's all sorts of stuff I don't want to see going on. But I'm like, this is the person that I love that I've known for years here's this little baby over here that I don't know at all. And they're saying, go with the baby. Yeah. And I remember just feeling torn. Like I, I want to support both and what, what's primary there. Yeah. And I I think that's what ended up happening to me when I ended up getting about two months in was this trying to support my wife and child and not taking care of myself because I was so focused and I've done this before in my life which I, I, reflecting back now, I realize that I've done this pattern before of putting myself far on the list of taking care of myself. When my grandmother passed away, like seven years ago, eight years ago, um, my father was distraught. She passed away in our home. My mother was just overwhelmed. Um, and I tried very hard to step up and be the strong, rock, solid man. I got exactly this man, this classic man thought process of I'm going to take on the brunt of all the hits, all the emotions. I'm going to be the one who is there for everyone and not there for myself. And again, about a month or two into that experience, I broke down crying. I fell to the ground after one small little trigger of something not, I think my toast burnt or something ridiculous (laughs) like that. That had nothing to do with anything to my real emotions and feelings and thoughts, I fell to the ground and could not control myself. And I did it again with my daughter and wife. And I didn't make that connection until a couple of years ago, where we're like a year or two into recently, um, where I was like, oh, I did it again. It's the same thing. Instead of saying, okay, I know I need to be there for you, but I need to step away sometimes. I'm sure the situations are totally drastically different. That thought process of putting other people so far ahead of myself that I forget that I also need to worry about myself and give myself space, care, and love. And and that was well, and, that- and it's it's interesting because I talk to a lot of men about this about the the primary importance of self care of because I when I was raised I was raised to think of others that it's selfish to think of yourself. Yeah, and and I think that's not uncommon where we're again, socialized to put others before ourselves. And I think the intention is great. I think the execution stinks because what I've seen happen for myself when I was younger and for a host of men is we put other people first, we get tapped out, depleted, exhausted, stressed, and then something small happens, as you said, and we we lose it. Yeah. And I think that a, a much better way to do that is to put our own needs first so that we have something in that bucket of positive emotions that we can draw upon to share with others around us, to support others. Because I, otherwise the other model is unsustainable. Like oh. at some point you're going to get tapped out and you're going to yeah. collapse, have a panic attack, get depressed, start drinking, whatever it is. Yeah. And I remember after I had my panic attack, I started reading, um, Dr. David Burns when panic attacks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And his more emotionally focused therapy model versus the medical model of like yeah. um, drug and, and medication and more. I think I think 
I know Dr. Sue Johnson's more EFT when it comes to relationships and marriage. I'm not sure what his model is. I think I there's a couple EFTs, but yeah. I don't know. And, and I'm not sure, you know, I don't want to. Yeah, you're you know, right. That's what I was. You're right. Yeah. that. So and he um, talks about the idea uh, and metaphor that I use so often with my clients and my own self. Um, the idea that if I ask you to clean your room and you take all of your crap and you throw it in a closet and shut the door as fast as possible, theoretically, or maybe practically, it looks clean. It looks clean. Everything's off the floor. The dirty laundry is somewhere. And when you're a kid and your mom or dad comes to the room, oh, you did a great job. Well, what happens if you need to open that closet? So the Dr. David Burns' thought process is that a lot of times panic attack and anxiety is our emotions that haven't been cleaned out or processed. That they're built up that you're like taking the dirt under the rug. And at some point when you're sleeping, I had a massive panic attack that woke me out of sleep. Which, wow. which is with no trigger. So I was sleeping in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. two o'clock in the morning. I woke up with my heart pounding. My face that is was a numb. shitty dream right there. Oh yeah. And my, my, my arm was numb. I thought I was having a stroke. Um, mm -hmm. so I started reading up on it as a therapist. Like that's my brain. So I, okay, I have to figure this out and the science behind it and the MRIs and scans that Dr. David Burns has done over the years shows that that's why trigger without a trigger panic attacks and anxiety attacks happen because you're not processing the emotions i think he says that there's like 8000 emotions in a day that you have there's no freaking mm -hmm. way that you can process all of them it's just not possible that's why mm -hmm. journaling exercising talking being you know expressive with how you're actually feeling cleans your room it it helps take away those things that you're hiding that can come out and bite you in the ass Mm -hmm. Who knows when? Um, so that gave me a lot of perspective on what I was doing, which was not talking about it and processing it and putting it out in the open to help relieve that dirty room a little bit. Well, it, it's interesting. I love the metaphor of the closet. And, and I think metaphors are incredibly powerful in terms of dealing with our emotions. Um, I, I just put a social media post out yesterday that I, I thought was pretty cool. And I stole it from someone else just to be fully honest, but it's, you know, two, two male friends talking and friend one is like, so what do you want? And the other guy says, I, I want my wife to be proud of me. I, I want a job that I like. I want to stop being annoyed all the time. I want to stop feeling like I'm just going through the motions. I want to throw my emotions in the gutter and be rid of them forever, but I want to be happy too. And the first friend says, no, I mean, what do you want for lunch? Oh, oh, uh, cheeseburger and fries. <laughs> and, I saw and I you think, post you know, that. <laughs> I just, it kind of cracks me up. I think it's so male um, that we're just trying to bury that stuff. It's kind of under the surface, but that's when the panic attack will hit us when we've just buried it, buried it, buried it. And I, I think men think that that's so unusual or they think that's crazy. To me, I just look at that as human. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's a, the emotions giving you a loudspeaker saying, hey, pay attention to this shit. Yeah. And that's something that I think, I think we've discussed before, even I know just from the other ex experts and people that I've talked to over the past couple of years, starting the podcast and really connecting with unbelievable people, um, is the idea that I'm sure you know this, but, um, for your listeners, like anxiety sometimes is just a siren or an alarm letting you know that something is serious, pay attention. It doesn't mean that you have to, that something's DEFCON, whatever's bad. DEFCON mm -hmm. 4, 1, I think the lower the five. number, the were 5. I, I don't know, number. I don't know. Well, so bad, right? It doesn't mean that, oh yeah. my gosh, red flags, alarm, alarm, I'm dying. 
but it could mean I need to pay attention to this more because something is, my brain is considering this dangerous or worrisome mm-hmm. or survive. I need to survive somehow. So when we pay attention to that alarm, it helps us become aware the emotions that come out analyzing it. Why? That's why I think talk. That's why I think and maybe I'm biased because I'm a therapist. Why therapy is so important because it gives that perspective of un- analyzing and understanding not what you're doing, but why it's happening and why you're doing it. Cause that can give you and how oh, it's impacting and you. how it's impacting you. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe that's more of a CBT thought process of that triangle, but uh, that's more where I live in, in that, in that idea. But coming to that understanding is so important. Well, and, and I also want to say just back to your panic attack after your daughter's born, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, 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 and here's what I mean by that. Like, I remember when my daughter was born, I was scared shitless. Yep. Like I have never, no one had ever trusted me to take care of a hour old baby or a 30 minute old baby. Yeah. And I had never held one and I hadn't not had a lot of practice at holding them. Plus she's a girl, she's female. She has different hardware for me. Like, what do I do with this? How do I clean this up? You know? Oh, you got to wipe a certain direction. What? Like I'd never changed a diaper. And, and so this was all pretty scary. And then you've got a wife that's recovering from a major abdominal surgery Yeah, and your role instantly changes from just husband to now your husband and father. So now you're split and trying to take care of both a baby who in many ways, I thought I had no business taking care of because I wasn't qualified. I'm semi-qualified now, but, <laughs> and, and your wife. And, yeah. and so it's this dramatic shift in roles, responsibilities, demands, you're getting less sleep. Um, and, all of a sudden you're you're acting as as nurse and doctor and uh, feeder i guess um but that's it's a huge shift i remember when um my wife a few days after giving birth had the opportunity to get her epidural out and finally take a shower um and it was me and my daughter by ourselves in the room and she had merconium like that black goo yeah. And it was in her, I thought she was dying. No one told me that black goo is going to come out this of my This is the daughter. early poop. Oh yeah. my God. I was screaming. I'm like, like nurse, like my daughter's dying. She's like, an alien. Yeah. Like, I'm like, what is this? And the nurse came in laughing. She's fine. You should have seen her before. She was vomiting it up before. And I'm like, okay, thank you for, for making me feel more comfortable. But that idea that you're saying is that shift of being split, um, I, I didn't know what and how to do it. And also I went right into work. So a couple of days later, I was back at the office working while my wife had well, not a couple of days, the week or two later, um, until I had paternity leave where I was really able to find my rhythm and my yeah. way of helping and, and feeling a part of the process of raising my child other than coming home or leaving my wife to take care of the, uh, of our daughter and then getting an update to learn how things should go. When my wife went to work by herself, it was just it was just me. It was just me and this beautiful child who scared me to death until I had mm-hmm. paternity leave where I felt confident and a part of something and that I had uh, an experience that was ours. Um, and after and then after that, I could hold her. I was doing the football hold. I was swinging her around. Yep. I was throwing her in the air. Like there was no, but until that point, about two months, I was consumed by fear that I was going to hurt this child or not be able to take care of her and keep her alive. And I had experience with children. I have a niece and nephew 
who I helped and took care of, but not not to keep alive because then I just passed them back <laughs> to my brother right. and sister-in-law. Okay, but for yeah. my experience, that changed everything. I think paternity leave changed everything for me. And once I had that and I got mental health treatment, therapists, and I got medication, everything came together and I haven't looked back since. And it's been, a, and of course, it's struggle. It's a struggle, right? It's not, you know, unicorns and daisies, but my mindset about it is not fear, fear-based. Yeah. When I do think it's one of the hardest times of life for me anyway, because of that sleep deprivation that, you know, you're tag teaming throughout the night, either you're breastfeeding or you're you know giving them breast milk or you're doing formula, but you have to wake up several times during the night. And, and it's, it's a really challenging time, but I think for any new fathers or mothers out there that are listening, I think one of the important takeaways from this is it is a process. You do get better at it and you gain confidence pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. And I will say that uh, full disclosure, my wife and I have been very open with other people about this. Um, so we went through IVF. So there's a lot of emotions around this, this, this hope and opportunity. Maybe we wouldn't have a family now we do. So it was like very much tense in my mind that like, this is our, this is it. Now, thank God we have one on the way. We have to do IVF also, but I will say this full disclosure, my wife and I's relationship was the worst that year. We have never had more fights. We've never screamed at each other as much. We've never been sassy or intense that way in a negative way, not sassy in a cute, fun way like other people. Yeah, like yeah. that happens normally where you joke and poke and prod and that's Cranky. cute and fun, right? We were just at each other's throats for that year. And with all that together, it was just how do we take care of the child, ourselves individually, and now how do we take care of this relationship? And it took yeah. a year till our anniversary where we had this very intense, not that we were getting divorced and there's nothing wrong with that. If that's the route that you need to do for your sanity and your safety and security. But we had such a hard conversation because we came to realization that we need to start being smarter with our energy and how we, how we take care of ourselves. And it was, and there's no shame. And I want to make it very clear. There's no shame in having a rough time when your life is flipped upside down with a baby. Mm-hmm. That's really why well, I want to say that. Back, it's so important. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you saying that. And go back a little bit and talk about the IVF process. And one of the stats we talked about that you taught taught me is, you know, that a third of the issue in fertility is due to the man, a third of the yep. issues due to fertility is female, and a third is unknown. Yeah. Yeah, that it's and uh, because I think you get. I think part of the reason for the conflict during IVF is, I, I think if I put myself in that position, there's a lot of shame of, yeah. you know, is it me or, you know, it's yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and I don't think shame is a constructive emotion, but I would sure as hell feel something like that or guilt. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah. You know, um, my wife knew that she had PCOS, um, and with every PCOS is different, the diagnosis. So some people just have to take a pill. And PCOS and is, isn't that a, a website I go to, to look up research articles? <laughs> oh no, that's PLOS. Sorry. I always forget what PCOS stands for. So I'm not going to try okay. at even guessing okay. at what it stands for. Um, uh, and I'm uh, a little embarrassed. I don't remember, but I just don't want to. A very you know, complicated term. We'll say that. Yeah. Um, and it really, um, and we, we tested ourselves just to make sure my wife knew we tried for about a year or so. And we started saying, you know, this is not working the natural way. Let's see what's going on. If there's an issue, let's not wait 20 years to figure this out. Let's get, let's get ahead of it. And we found out that, that my motility issues were a big problem and my wife's PCOS. 
that the signal from her brain to her 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 ovaries were not loud enough. Her brain hmm. was sending a message and the speakers weren't turned up, basically just a mm -hmm. metaphor. Um, so we tried, you know, we did shots and all these things in the process, but I think it was shots easier for like what whiskey or <laughs> that was for me. Uh, no, but, uh, like medication, <laughs> progesterone, all these oh, wonderful geez. medications. Um, uh, okay. but that's during parenting. You have those shots. Um, and, yeah. and in the end, I think I've, I've worked and had friends who've reached out to me since us being open about our infertility journey and story uh that i i know a couple right now who there's no issue at all with either of them they just biologically can't have kids and that to me would be harder huh. that's that third that one third yeah of the issue um and i didn't know this stuff i didn't know infertility statistics one in eight couples in america go through an infertility issue um now that could be struggling to have a kid and you need to take a pill or having a surgery or not being able to actually have kids and need to use IUI uh, or IVF um, and all these different experiences. So one in eight couples struggle with that. So for us, I think it was easier for us to experience that we both had a part versus an, an easy ability to blame or to feel resentment. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the idea of having an unknown cause, that would be, I think, harder than yep. either the option of one of us having an issue but in the end it well, was, and we uh, know that from studies if i can break in there because yeah, we know that that period of the not knowing is the most stressful so in other words they've done studies on people waiting for a call on a cancer yeah. diagnosis yeah. and once you get the call and you either have cancer or you don't you can deal with either one of those you can take steps to address them what's hardest is waiting for the call so that yeah. not knowing seems to be really strict one Wow. In COVID, that's what we're dealing with, right? Is uncertainty. And that's what's driving a lot of people nuts. Every day. And, I, I don't uh, mean like clinically nuts. I just no, mean but kind of I'm saying every anxious, day. stressed. Every day, the unknown of, is there going to be another virus? Are we going to have to shut down again? Are my kids going to be in school? Is my job going to be there? I'm, I'm just right. waiting for the, the announcement to come on the loudspeaker to say, by the way, we're shutting down again. Or this mandate, this idea, this conversation. I'm not here to get into political conversation about mm -hmm. what might be right or wrong or, or medically or professional, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, but in the end, the idea for us, that actually brought us closer together as a relationship. So we went through, again, this pendulum swing of being really rocks for each other to support each other when we felt low or down when our friends were getting pregnant and having kids while we couldn't um going to meals with everyone talking about their children and their babies and being pregnant right and then us being a tight-knit unit to rely on each other for emotional support and love and affection and that uh, that that thing to laugh about and that person to cry with and then all of so a sudden let me, going let me ask you this if next I can, ellie yeah please sorry to interrupt but no how go for you, it because i mean for fertility issues in general are a huge stressor in a relationship, which yeah. I, I understand. And it seems, I don't know, frustrating and a little bit tragic to me in the sense that I, I think that the more stressed you are while trying to conceive, I think it negatively impacts your probability yeah. of conceiving. True. And so then you've got this, you have trouble with it. And then you put this extra layer on it of IVF yeah. or something. So how did you guys get from this stressed out kind of conflict place to being rocks for each other? Um, a few things. One, we are very good communicators. Um, so we really are very good at talking to each other about what we're actually feeling without 
Now, we're not perfect, you know, without defending or fighting back or taking it personal that you're frustrated with something or or, or uh, something that happened. Um, and we also, my wife, now the thing that one of the reasons that pushed me to actually start talking on social media and posting more was the experience of IVF. Because I noticed that men were not sharing anything. Anything that was deep and real. Not the pictures yeah. of the workout, not the business success, not the amazing cars, not the sporting event you just went to. Which... What about my private jet, my $8 million <laughs> jet? Does that count? Uh, yeah. Uh, right. And all those things, which I think are fine. Have a good time. Be cool. Go, go do that. Um, and for me, my wife found support on Facebook and from friends in minutes. I mean, wow. so fast. And I was looking around and wondering where the hell are the men? Where are the people that I need? Cause all my life I've been better at connecting with women than men because of my I'm very emotionally, I have emotional intelligence. I'm very emotionally aware. I'm very emotionally in tune. The, the, the bros growing up were not that for me. I had so many girlfriends growing up, not relationship. Now you're here. Uh, not the romantic relationship, but all that, all those, all those friends that I had were mostly girls that I could talk to that talked to me. Yeah. I, I guess I was a therapist all along. Um, so when I was going through this struggle, I'm like, where the hell are these men? So I started posting about infertility. I started getting involved. I started looking, noticing there are, are some men here and there. And then when I actually had a baby and I went through the panic attack and I started posting, I started realizing the impact that when men start showing up in that deep, real way, being vulnerable and honest with their emotions, how fast people go, oh my gosh, I felt the same way. How did you mm -hmm. know? And then I fell onto so your me, account. Uh, so just so interesting. Let me let me let me interrupt you there for a second, Ellie. Sorry to interrupt. No, please. Um, going back to beginning to post about IVF or infertility issues, what were the feelings associated with that? Like before, right before oh, you did that? Oh, it was that. so self care. It was so for me. It was so for me to to have a place to share, and and a place for me to to maybe help another person. To what extent was it scary? Um, I don't get, it's funny. I don't get scared with posting vulnerability and realness on social media. I get scared more of posting stupid TikTok or dancing videos <laughs> of being like appreciated or liked for something that's jokey and funny versus like, I don't feel embarrassment or worry, um, about posting real honesty. Um, I don't know why huh, I just, I never felt, I never because felt I, worried about that. I think one of the reasons that men don't share about such things, those vulnerable, honest things it's that judgment. maybe they could be judged on is I think is embarrassment. Yeah. Well, I think fear of negative judgment, but I think yeah. the embarrassment is the emotion that really drives us that we do not like to be embarrassed. So, yeah. you know, we'll just man up, grin and bear it. Yeah. You know, we'll just, I don't know. I nut I, up. <laughs> Not up. I, I don't know. I never, I never had that experience of being afraid to share emotions, ever. Hmm. Um, and uh, I ha I've had experience of feeling em embarrassed or worried of being judged on performance things. So I used to be, I used to sing in a choir for years, uh, traveling the country and singing. I was worried, will I mess up, and will people know? Right. I was worried about hmm. that. 
Um, like when I, like I said, when I do a TikTok, I start, I started getting involved in reels and TikToks just for fun and see if that helps bring more followers and which is annoying on its own. But I, I, I record, <laughs> I recorded a few videos and I, I, I have not posted them because I'm dancing or I'm pointing and I'm doing something that's out of my comfort zone, but give me a microphone and give me a, a, a platform or questions about emotions and real topics no questions asked. I'll be there in a second. Like that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't mm. consume me with fear. And that's not a natural thing or uh, a default for most men. The default for most men is, are right. you kidding me? I would never do that. You know, let me well, make here's a fool the reason myself. I asked, um, it, you know, I remember back in uh, 2006 or so when I had a, a radio show in the Bay area and I realized, holy shit, like if I can't talk about my mental health issues, who else can like yeah. I need, I have a responsibility to be honest about this shit. And then the more I thought about it, and that's the key is you don't really want to think about it that much. I, I started getting really worried, scared, fearful of, you know, Oh, p- pussy, you know, yeah. what a wimp because I was, I, I came out on the radio and said, look, part of my DNA, part of my makeup is I got a little depression and I got a little anxiety. I just have great emotional depth. I feel things deeply. And you know, what happened? Nothing, nothing. A little bit of support, but yeah, it just wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, and and so I, I think to me that's a pretty normal male reaction to having to reveal something about yourself that you're afraid you might be judged negatively on. And for you, part- you, it might be your dancing. Yeah, <laughs> basically, I'm very nervous about being. Uh, I'm nervous about making like a mistake in that way. But like, um, I'm also nervous about writing. I'm a very bad writer, so I'm very nervous when I put something out there writing wise. That freaks me out too. Um, but when it comes down to this idea that we're talking about, that that fear or that uh, disapproval or needing to be approved by by those that you're you're putting your stuff out there to, for me, it really is just I always grew up in an atmosphere that emotions were embraced. Like you need to share. I went to was therapy on, for you. Was that on Mars? Where, where was that? <laughs> um, Venus. Women are from Venus, so men are from oh, Mars. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I, I have a, I, have, I was diagnosed with ADHD, and I was in therapy for, as a kid, going to psychiatry back in the day when psychiatry they actually sat with you for thirty to forty-five minutes and spoke mm. to you and didn't just the good old days give you pills and say we're done after five minutes. Um, I always had the ability and a space to share. Um, I grew up where my where the psychiatrist and the counselors in school pushed me to journal. Um, mm. Like I was just in that environment all my life of being able to share. And if I don't share or I can't share, that makes me more uncomfortable where I feel like if I'm in an environment where I don't feel that I can share or be my full self, I think most people feel this way, or I can't be emotional or be embracing all that emotional side, I get very uncomfortable. I don't like that. I need to and, be in And place. see, I would say that's not stereotypically male. No, it's not. And that's why for years I never uh, felt, I never felt man enough. Or yeah, fish out of water. Exactly. I never felt that I can, I, until I met other men when I was in high school, I had a few friends and, and I met them and they were very similar in that way. So until I felt, found my crew or my, my uh, little community, or, or that little cohort of, of people that made me feel that were very similar in that thought process. It was very weird. I felt always uncomfortable with guys because I was like, well, I can't show my emotion because that's I a agree. classic I mean, also. That was my, yeah, that was my 
experience growing up. And I thought I was the only man who felt things deeply. Yeah. And then in doing the work that we do, I do um, over the past, geez, I don't know, 25, 30 years, long time. Um, I would say that 95% of men that I've talked with are exactly the same. We're just trying to put the mask on or keep the mask on to prevent anyone from knowing. Yeah. We don't want people seeing it. Yeah. And, and we're worried that someone's going to, to, to judge or to hate on because it's or, embarrassing or yeah, it can be yeah can be. because of judgment yeah um so the other thing i wanted to bring up just because i so do you know the sex of your second baby we the do. gender we do gender. oh but that's a secret yeah yeah secret okay so i don't want to push on that but i here's what i experienced and i, I think this is kind of important to share that when for our first child we had a daughter we had a girl and my experience, my perception was my wife was on the ceiling. She was over the moon with excitement to have a, a daughter. And I was, I was happy, you know, but I was kind of at a seven. And I think part of it was that I was, it was tinged with some fear over, I don't really know. I don't know what to do with the daughter. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, we had a son and I was over the moon. I was on the ceiling with excitement. And I think my wife was kind of at a seven, you know, she was happy. And, and I think that that's, I've talked with a few people about this, not that many. So it's a small sample size, but I think that that's a pretty typical reaction. And so for those of you that are having children anytime soon, don't judge yourself negatively. If you're not as excited as your partner for whatever. Um, and I, cause I think to me, my excitement with my daughter came later as I got to know her. Same. Um, Same. And so I, just a different experience from mom to dad. Yeah. I, I, my, my wife was over the moon having a daughter. Um, and I honestly really wanted a daughter. Like I was excited to have uh, a little girl, like a little daddy's girl. Absolutely. Like I was so pumped yeah. for that. And, you know, the tea parties and the dress ups and whatever she wanted to do, whether it was ballerina sports, I could care less what she does in the future as long as she's happy. Um, and in the and in the beginning, I just didn't feel connected. Um, and then now, like, she's my little my little lady, like she's my like, mm -hmm. I feel very connected to her. And honestly, um, no matter what we have, I don't know if I'll be any more comfortable or not. Because I didn't really know what to do for a girl. I'm not sure I'll know what to do for a boy. Just because I'm a guy, in my in my head, my in my head, just because I'm a guy doesn't mean <clears throat> I know how to raise a boy. True. And it doesn't mean I know what the hell I'm doing with a girl. And so that's my feeling about it. Would I like to have a boy for that, you know, bromance between the two of us and, you know, that classic thought process of playing sports together and bonding over, you know, things together. Sure. But I can also do that with my daughter. But I think that's part of it. I think we have these fairy tale or Disney yeah. stories in our heads about yeah. what it means to be a father of a daughter or father of a son. Not that those are going to come true, but I, I think that enters into it. And, and I think just for any new fathers out there, I, I just think it's a really important point to realize that our connection might lag a little bit behind that of the mother's your wife ideally because 
we don't have that physical connection for the first nine, 10 months. Yep. And, and I think that's normal. And I think that's also why, you know, I'm surprised your daughter looked like your mother-in-law because I think that typically babies look like their fathers at first in order to keep us around on an evolutionary scale. Oh, my daughter is so much my wife's family, like how she looks. Only recently, only recently, now it depends on who you ask. It's a very big debate in our family. By big debate, I mean no one really talks about it. Um, <laughs> no, no one really talks about it. The thought process I have, um, she's looked like my, my, my wife's family for, for a year and a half and the past year or so um she has started to have similar my eyes um and certain just mannerisms that are me um but in the end i know she's mine and that's all that matters yeah. to me so but for me I, I love that point because i struggled i felt like a third wheel for like six yep. seven months of of the of her life because my wife was breastfeeding and even yep. though it was torture at some nights because of how long it took and the back and forth and cluster feeding and all the insanity that went into it, I was like, okay, so I'm just going to stand here and watch you have a good time. You too. Like I'll be here yeah. if you need me. Oh, you don't need me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then happening day after day. Oh, I'm not needed. Oh, I'm not needed. Oh, I'm not needed because you got this. Yeah, you guys go ahead and bond a little bit more. I'll just be like, in the corner. But you know what? I bonded. My wife cannot nap or fall asleep with the baby on her chest she couldn't do it uh, so i was yeah, the nap that's king. a great thing i was a nap king so every time like if i had a free if i had a day off or like a sunday or, or a weekend where i wasn't doing anything and the baby fell asleep i took naps with her like i would fall asleep with her yeah. and that was my bonding i found and i say this to a lot of dads who are struggling to find that find something that's yours with your child you're not mm -hmm. going to be able to breastfeed you can't Biologically, you're not going to be able to. Maybe you can do bottle feeding, and that's your bonding. Maybe it's um, laying on the floor and playing with your child. Maybe your thing is napping with your kid, or feeding your kid, or drop off, pick up. Whatever that moment is for you as a dad, as a father, those are the moments that you, because you can't do everything. You're not going to be everything right. to your child. So if you find right. your little niche that is yours and your child, you feel needed. And then you feel well, and I, I connected. Think, I think that's great advice. And I think that fathers and mothers serve different purposes in many yeah. ways. And, and, you know, one of the studies shows that, you know, fathers tend to increase the physiological arousal of the child. And, you know, granted, this might be a little bit later, like two plus. Yeah. But, you know, typically they're, you know, roughhousing or throwing the child slightly up in the air, which, you know, depends how high is based on who's perceiving it. But, um, you know, there's that classic <laughs> meme of, you know, the child thinks that they're, you know, well, dad's throwing the baby up in the air. It seems like it's a foot high babies from the baby's perspective. It's like six feet high from the mom's perspective. It's like a hundred feet high. <laughs> um, and, and I think, and then the mom often tends to teach the child to soothe themselves and bring their physiology down to calm themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that was helpful for me just realizing that, Oh, I, I might serve a little bit different purpose. And, and the other thing I wanted to say is, I just realized, and you know, I have four kids that I was not a real big baby fan. I could do that baby phase, but it wasn't my favorite. I much more enjoyed my kids as they got a little bit older, got a voice, got a personality, you know, that one and a half, two plus where I could interact with them and play with them. That became much more fun to me. And that's totally fine. I think one of the biggest things that is super important for for dads and fathers and, and and parents as a whole is to communicate that 
that it's mm-hmm. okay if you're struggling and that you're not connecting or not fully a hundred percent on not not on board, but that you're maybe not as thrilled or excited. But also, if you find that thing that you're really into with your child, let the other person in that this really matters to me. Maybe it's bath time or bedtime, where. You can have the other things, but I really need this for my comfort and mm-hmm. connection with this child. It makes me feel needed. It makes me feel wanted. It makes me feel respected. It makes me feel seen as a parent. Just speak up. Speak up and tell the person well, and, in your and, life. And I think the other, I think that's great advice. The other point I would add to that is try not to judge yourself negatively for feeling a certain way or having a favorite phase of development or you know, being more excited that you have a son and less excited for having a daughter. Like all that stuff, if you can look at it as natural, yeah. I think helps out a lot rather so than, healthy. oh my gosh, I'm a bad father. I'm not as excited. It's so healthy. Just, you're just piling on yourself. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the whole idea of allow whatever's arising to arise without judgment, I think is a a good one internally to go with. So Ellie, we got to wrap up here in a few minutes, but I wanted to touch on a couple of things because I, I think these are really important for men. Well, I guess humanity, but what does self-love mean to you? So I struggle with this, honestly. Um, I'm very self-critical. I think we all do. That's why it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> I'm very critical of myself and I have a very, I'm a very, I'm very judgmental of myself. Well, that means how I'm performing as a therapist uh, as a professional, um, as a father, as a husband, and especially I'm very hard on myself when it comes to my body. Um, so it's why I work out a lot. It's why. And um, in the end, for me, self-love is being able to look at myself in the mirror and be okay or proud of who I am that day. It doesn't mean that yesterday was the same or tomorrow is going to be the same. And it means... Um, being able to look at my successes and be proud without judging or hating on and not hurting myself or be eating myself alive when I make mistakes and that learning from them versus attacking myself. And when I have a success, pat myself on the back and not say you could have done more or what are you going to do next, but be in the moment of making that success. And Mm -hmm. it take, and I will be honest, there are days where I'm really good at this and there are a lot of days that I'm not. Um, and it's something I'm still working on. So self-love for me is yeah. a very back and forth journey that I'm, I'm with constantly on a day-to-day basis. Well, and thank you. I think that was a great answer. Um, and, and I, I think you're right. It's not a destination. It's a process. And we're yeah. always on that, that journey because I think it's entirely mood dependent, right? Like if I'm a little bit bummed out one day, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be real self-loving. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's a very important goal to shoot for, to have that self-acceptance, to, I mean, I think when I was younger, I thought self-love was buying myself cool shit. Yeah. Which I did, I did also is sometimes. kind of fun, but fleeting, right? Yeah. Um, and but I, I, I don't think, think that has anything to do with self-love. You could treat yourself, treat yourself. But yeah. um, I, I think uh, it's more about learning to speak to yourself as a best friend would speak to you or learning yeah. to speak to yourself as you would speak to a small child. So it's that self-compassion yeah. piece is a, is a big part of it. I, I, uh, you know, I know, I, th- I think a big struggle that the world has today, I'm sure you've heard this before, or you've talked about this before. Um, I know I hear it so often is the idea of, of, of likes and dislikes and views on social media being a value system that we have for self-acceptance that if I like post a video and I, I get zero views, does that mean something wrong with me? And or a post that you put your heart and soul into and you get three likes and no shares. 
does that mean that what I'm putting out there is wrong? And I think something that people need to hear is you have no control over it because it's a freaking algorithm. And if mm -hmm. you watch what, if you watch social, that d social, social dilemma, dilemma, you understand yeah. how it's not so simple why something is being seen more than another person. And it's really well, not and about I, If you. I can jump in there, I, I think part of it is for us is that, you know, we can put stuff out there and my, I don't know if it's a rationalization or interpretation, but my belief is that a lot of men will see that or some men will see that and they'll be like, oh yeah, but they're not going to put anything out there because yeah. it's embarrassing or they Which might be also just negatively. doesn't mean you're not making an impact just because someone didn't push right. like or comment. And right. And then we are so critical because we don't get that immediate gratification of a love, a heart, or a, a little like button. And on the Social Dilemma documentary, the guy who created the like button said he had no idea what impact it would have on the mental health of the society of the world. Yeah, how addictive it would be. He thought they were doing it as a way of like giving a high five. Mm -hmm. Like, good job. And it's become such a currency of our success um, and it's really something that I've tried to be aware of more of myself. Well, it's a serotonin drop. Oh, so I, I mean, it's a hit of serotonin. Yeah. It's why scrolling. And is that's so why fun. it's addictive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Ellie, I, I always love talking to you. I, I think that was a really valuable conversation. So thank you mo so much for sharing your insight and your Anytime. wisdom. I really appreciate it. Um, where can people get a hold of you if they would like to find out more? Sure. I have a new website, www.elliewinesteinlcsw.com. I don't know why I said the www. I feel like I was born in the 90s. Yeah, I guess I we can that, leave right? that off these days. Yeah. yeah. Elliewinesteinlcsw.com. I have my podcast, The Dude Therapist. I'm a dude who's a therapist who talks about mental health and wellness with a lot of experts and specialists. And uh, you can find me on social media, Weinstein underscore LCSW. And get in contact with me however way you can, and hopefully I can help. And Instagram, you do a lot on Instagram too. Dude Therapist. Is it yeah. The Dude Therapist? It's The Dude Therapist yeah. is my and, podcast and platform. And Ellie Weinstein underscore LCSW is the other, is my main my main hub. And Ellie is spelled E-L-I. E-L-I. Very, -I. Confusing, Very confusing. I know. I'm messing with everyone's heads. And And thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Always, John. All right. And that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you like this episode, if you love this episode, if it touched you deeply, please remember to like, rate, and review. And if you didn't like it, that's okay. You don't have to do a damn thing. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 